there's similar numbers when you when you go down the list. I mean, it's a total of four point three million dollars um, to the people on those two committees over their careers from the sector. So it's a it's it's a mega buck industry. Welcome to episode four hundred and twenty one of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Ryan Marcatillo McCracken, the Institute for Local Self Reliance. Today on the podcast, we welcome Ernesto Falcone and Steve Bloom. Ernesto is Senior Legislative Counsel for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a powerhouse nonprofit organization defending civil liberties in a digital world. Steve Bloom is president of TELUS Ventures Associates, which provides management and business development guidance for companies working in telecommunications. You can find him at TELLUSVentures.com. In this episode, Christopher, Ernesto, and Steve talk about what's going on with broadband in California and current legislation looking to make sure California broadband subsidies result in high-quality networks that don't leave people behind. They talk about a new bill crafted to stop that effort, as well as the role of campaign donations and T-Mobile merger conditions on the future of rural broadband in the state. A quick note, in the episode when Christopher mentions the CPUC, he's talking about the California Public Utilities Commission. Now here's Christopher talking with Ernesto Falcone and Steve Bloom. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today, I'm speaking with one of the, the first people to make such a rapid reappearance on a separate show, Ernesto Falcone, the Senior Legislative Counsel at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF. Welcome back to the show, Ernie. Thanks for having me. And we also bring in Steve Bloom, the president of TELUS Venture Associates, a man who's done a lot of work chronicling what happens in California broadband on his blog. Thanks for coming on, Steve. Good to be here, Chris. Well, I, I definitely appreciate it. You've had some um, a lot of good information uh, that, that I find very valuable. I should have had you on a long time ago. And I'm uh, looking forward to talking about what's been happening lately in California and um, trying to make some sense of it for folks. Um, but I think it may start with, with Ernie. And let me ask you to just quickly remind us, you were on two months ago talking about um, this bill in California, 1130. Um, what is happening there as a quick recap? Yeah, so since last we spoke, you know, we were heading towards uh, initial votes at, at the committees that handle these questions on the on the California Senate. Uh, since then, you know, we, we passed that committee fairly, uh, fairly commandingly, uh, a bipartisan vote, and then we had a subsequent bipartisan vote on the Senate floor. And uh, we're heading towards the other body, which is the Assembly. Um, we had a little bit of a delay, mostly driven by kind of the COVID-19 rescheduling and some of the contention between the Senate and Assembly on just general priorities of bills, but uh, we're expecting a vote later this month uh, or later in August, uh, and then head to the Assembly floor shorter, shorter thereafter. And what does the what does the bill do in in like a minute of explanation? The premise is simple. Uh, we establish and update the California Internet uh, Access Program called the California Advanced Services Fund to essentially mean one thing: uh, if you lack one high speed access connection in California you are eligible for state financing. And if the state were to finance a network in your backyard, it has to be a high quality, high ca high capacity network, uh, namely fiber. And Steve, let me bring you in. And actually, I, I've neglected to note that you're a consultant as well. You don't just write about this stuff, but you're, you're, <laughs> you're living it. You're advising people on it. Um, and, and so you followed it quite closely. For someone who's not familiar with the CISF, can you just give a very brief background of it and, um, and how all this works? The California Advanced Services Fund has been around for... I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years now. It's 
uh, one of the universal service fund uh, programs that California runs. It's funded by a, uh, by a small tax on intrastate telephone calls, um, which is a declining source of revenue these days. But it uh, has generated hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, which is given out mostly as grants to um, internet service providers to upgrade broadband service in areas that are considered now considered unserved. Uh, unserved in California means you don't have access to six megabits down, one megabit up. The uh, legislature changed that uh, two years ago, three years ago, uh, when they uh, lowered the standard from <laughs> six down and one and a half up, um, which sounds like a small change, but that's a generation of technology. So basically, if you have 1990s grade DSL infrastructure in your neighborhood, um, that can uh, that can deliver usually can deliver six down one up, and that means uh, state of California says you got everything you need. One of the things that that you've done that I just I, again I would say that I really appreciate the work that you do because if we had um, people like you keeping track of state politics in every state, we would be doing so much better. You 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 had a list of all of the potential projects that are going to be getting money from CASF, and yeah. it just pissed me off. Man, I was angry. Um, tell us about the projects that are that are likely to be approved in the near future. Well, there's uh, more than $500 million in grant requests pending right now. Some of those are fiber. Some of those are uh, hybrid fiber coax upgrades, and some of them are just uh, bog standard uh, fixed wireless uh, projects. Um, that's better, by the way, than the last round uh, when uh, Frontier got uh, millions of dollars to uh, do marginal upgrades to its DSL plant. Uh, this time around, they're, they're proposing fiber. Uh, but the projects range from um, essentially uh, nearly countywide uh, fiber to the home deployments to uh, just kind of spot uh, wireless, wireless projects and uh, a few very focused uh, cable, uh, cable uh, extensions, cable plant extensions. In, in some cases, it's great stuff. In other cases, it's why are we spending taxpayer money on this? And that's the part that gets me because I have turned into over the years, I think, of, of someone who's really upset at government wasted dollars um, in, in the sense that, um, you know, what is the amount that government can put forward to get the kind of investment we want? But how do we avoid putting extra? In? We're talking about 100 percent of the cost being funded here by yes. by the CISF. And that is indefensible. It, we, we don't know yet that the, that the PUC is going to approve 100% funding, but okay. they have, they did in the last round. This time around, I said there's more than $500 million in proposals, but there's only about $145, $150 million available um, right now. So something's going to give. Uh, what might give is a percentage they uh, contribute. But yeah, the uh, the 100% financing was another gift uh, from the legislature three years ago. Uh, it used to be uh, 60, 60 to 70 percent, depending on uh, circumstances. But yeah, it's uh, the applicants aren't required to have any skin in the game anymore. Yeah, it's a it's a good con if you can get it. Um, so, Ernie, you come forward and and I think I think it's correct to say that you're one of the the, the big forces on on reforming the CASF. Um, but there's a competing bill now. And and so tell us what this what this other bill does that is trying to take the wind out of your sails. 
there's a philosophical divide that's happening that that's kind of being exploited by you know essentially cable and and AT and T and Frontier communications, which is um, either we invest uh, and deploy fiber in these rural markets in these low income neighborhoods, or we settle for kind of scraps. We settle for the lowest common denominator on the cheapest price and say job done. We got them something better than nothing. And can I pause you there for a second, please? Yeah, because. That argument infuriates me because that's a recipe for just spending more money in the same spots over and over again. Because it's not like those people are going to say, you know what? I got my 15 megabits a second. I'm really happy with that. I'm going to stop asking for something more. And there's always going to be a constituency as long as we have a massive imbalance between the rural and the, and the private I and mean, the rural and the, the more urban. Yeah, and what what they explain is a couple of things. Um, you know, I think the primary, uh, the author of driving AB five seventy is an assembly member, Augura Curry. You know, I think just her team don't believe that we should be spending the requisite investment, which is you know, it's a high upfront dollar cost. But when you don't think about like the long term value in that, then then it actually you know then it seems like it's too much. And, you know, I think they just are making the conclusion of, you know, oh, that just seems like a pipe dream. Maybe we should just settle for what we can get. And, and without really, I think, playing out the damage that does, like there's no like leveraging point from if we get them basic service, we got them this much closer to the future. No, you actually set them back because now we just wasted all that money and we're going to have to replace all that, that, you know, legacy, outdated, obsolete infrastructure. Uh, and the problem never went away. You just kind of, you know, you, you, you spent a, a diversion of funds. Um, which, you know, if I'm the industry, that's exactly what I want. You know, I want you, the, you know, the, the customer to be stuck with my slow monopoly for as long as humanly possible, because every year I can keep you paying for me because I'm the only choice in the market is money I'm saving from not upgrading, uh, and, and facing what happened to frontier communications in general, which was eventually people finally got other options in their markets. And, and every single time someone got a slightly faster speed, they ditched this little old DSL network. And I might add that um, at this point, there's a lot of customers that even if Frontier offered them fiber to the home and they could get a decent, less reliable, perhaps um, fixed wireless connection, they'll do that because they're just so sick. They don't want to give another dollar of their hard-earned money to Frontier for the rest of their lives if they can handle it because of the way Frontier has treated them. Um, I just want to. We talked about. I talked about this previously with Doug Dawson, but Steve, I feel like your your technical background can help. Um, is it correct to think that if we just slightly improve DSL in these rural areas, that that we are getting? Does that then ultimately lower the cost of a of a permanent solution that's higher capacity in the future? No, no, no. I mean, you're you're not improving the basic, the underlying infrastructure. Um, DSL in rural California is carried on copper wires that have been there for decades, um, maybe in some cases centuries. Doing marginal upgrades and what Frontier does, um, for example, with CASF money, is they will go into a central office, upgrade the electronics there, which you need to do anyway every, you know, every 10 years or so. They'll go in, up, upgrade the electronics, do minor work on the outside plant, and then just jam the uh, signal down uh, down the lines and you know the guys next door might get 100 down 20 up and 10 miles out you're getting you know kilobit service so it it doesn't really help what you need to do is push fiber deeper and deeper into the network so in theory yeah um if you were to do a a, a bonafide 
uh, VDSL upgrade where you're doing you know fiber to the node and you're you're pushing fiber into neighborhoods. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a an upgrade that leans towards future, but that's not really practical in rural areas where you don't have the population density um, to get you know to get you know dozens of houses within you know four or five hundred meters of a of a node. Well, and additionally, I feel like that's an appropriate policy and a monopoly mindset where yep. we know that we're going to give some money to this company today. And then in five years, we're going to give more money to that company. But that's not what we have in the United States. We don't know who's going to be most competitive for upgrading in the future. So it seems particularly foolish. If you have fiber, you don't have to worry. DSL, it's going to be constant patchwork. Ernie? Yeah, there, I mean, this is the other mindset. So there's just kind of there's philosophies of like, should we give them the lowest common denominator on the cheapest price and then that, that solves the issue or should we invest in something that's long lasting that's one philosophy the other thing is um who's the builder right and who's the who's going to deliver that future to these communities and you know there are legislators and if you look at a lot of these policies that exist uh in the telecom space the belief of if i just give them enough carrots if i just give the national isp enough benefits, enough free, you know, enough uh, free money, uh, they will deliver that. And because they're like the most sophisticated player in the area. And it, it is long past due for policymakers to just conclude they're never building there, no matter what you do. And, and you can favor them as much as you want. But the reality is that the future is going to come from, you know, s- small private and local governments uh, in, in the areas that are left behind, because they're the ones that are most vested in actually delivering the, the future. Steve, I'm curious if if you have any stats in the in the back of your head about the last time AT and T got price relief and and got to um, charge whatever wanted for the telephone services with the deregulation. Um, did that result in more investment um, in California? I I haven't seen any statistics that indicate that anything that's happened at a policy level has affected AT and T's investment strategy over the years. That's a question that goes back thirty forty years. But, um, you know, just over the last 10 years, you look at where AT&T has spent money. I mean, they're doing fiber to the home in Cupertino, um, mm-hmm. you know, that which is which is a wonderful place to be. Um, on the other hand, um, there have been a couple of studies in the last uh, couple of years, uh, one by the Haas Institute at Berkeley and the other by the CPUC that both have concluded that AT&T and Frontier have been systematically disinvesting in rural areas. Um, they're focusing their investment on high potential, uh, high uh, ROI potential uh, communities, neighborhoods, and just milking um, the investments that were made 50 years ago, back when they were guaranteed a rate of return and could spend as much as they wanted on, uh, on infrastructure. Um, they're just milking those investments that, uh, that uh, they paid off uh, you know, back uh, back before I could vote. <laughs> I was just speaking with a reporter before this, and, and I was trying to explain it because he asked me, well, does it ever make sense for a rural company to invest in these areas where you have so few people per linear mile? And and I was, I was, I, the way I was explained it to him was to say, 
Look, if you're AT&T, you're not going to invest in Southern Illinois when you can invest in Chicago. Like, that's the way it goes. But, like, if you're a small company in Southern Illinois, you're not going to start building a network in Chicago. <laughs> like, that's also the way it goes. And so getting back to what, what Ernie was saying, I think that's the key is really focusing on entities that have the incentive, uh, that are rooted in the area, that want to invest in those areas. Um, but let me let me move on and, and ask you, Steve, because you did good work on this. Um, the sponsor of AB five seventy, which is trying to prevent Ernie from bringing higher quality networks to California, um, it seems like I mean we just dis- discussed how the that approach is is foolish and and is not um, cost effective. But it seems like she is someone who um, has received a lot of support from the big um, cable and telephone companies, and and I, an amount that I found eye-opening well it's 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 eye-opening um to anybody outside of california where there's big money in politics here uh but cecilia aguiar curry has received uh over the course of her legislative career 82 $83, from uh the communications and electronics industry sector uh 24 of that has come from at&t uh and 12 000 of that has come from uh various uh, various bits of the cable industry. So she's she's done fairly well, uh, not as well uh, in that sector as the chairs of the two uh, of the two uh, major legislative committees or the uh, or some of the other folks on those uh, major communications uh, committees. Um, you know, the chair of the Assembly Communications and Conveyance Committee, for example, Miguel Santiago, um, has taken two hundred and fifty-two thousand uh, dollars from the sector over the course of his career. Uh, Evan Lowe on that committee three hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars over his career, and you know there's there's similar numbers when you when you go down the list. I mean, it's a total of four point three million dollars um, to the people on those two committees over their careers from the sector. So it's a it's it's a mega buck industry. Yeah, I mean when when we talk about the kind of influence AT&T has in Missouri, for instance, we might be talking about tens of thousands of dollars over a period of two years <laughs> to the entire party. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking about like 2,500 to individual folks. So you're right. California is a different scale for different reasons, but it also, it, it is, I think, an important piece of the explanation for why someone would put forward a bill that um, is, is just so counterproductive to what even I think, even what I think she would like to achieve in terms of high quality access throughout the state. Yeah. The, the, the money is pervasive. Well, and what it does, uh, Chris is it, it, it blinds legislators in a way that, you know, they're, they're looking to do a favor for, for their supporter, right. In terms of the campaign side uh, who, who will, who willfully lie, right. Like they'll, they will tell them these numbers and these things and these, uh, these metrics get you what you need, you know, trust us. And and sometimes they don't do it directly. Sometimes they kind of do it through, you know, you know, trusted allies of the industry who represent themselves as folks who are interested in, in closing the digital divide. And so it's a it's a tough thing in the telecom space. I mean, we, we faced a similar dynamic in, you know, doing net neutrality a couple of years ago where, um, you know, the same dynamic, the a whole bunch of their, you know, primary benefactors uh, kind of had to be bludgeoned into voting for net neutrality at the end of the day. And, you know, the fortunate thing i think this year uh as this, this debate is happening is broadband is front and central amongst so many people that the idea of um voting down something that kind of expands and expands the, the help right um is crazy 
but the and so the way they're trying to get around the legislature right now in Sacramento is is just is basically just lying. You know, basically saying this non-fiber, you know, pro DSL, you know, some far away cell tower bill is the solution to all these digital divide problems you're hearing from your constituents. And, you know, even going so far as, you know, I've heard that, you know, AT&T is telling people that a 25-3 broadband standard is fiber to the home. You know, as a means of obfuscating the difference between a bill that actually does promote fiber uh, and, and their bill with they, that they're, you know, kind of pushing in the back, uh, but obviously does not. One of the things that I think the money does is it makes it less likely you're going to ask the questions. So when they come to you and say, 25-3 is all you need or 25-3 is fiber to the home, you're not going to say... Really, I'm going to push back hard on that, you know, and that's where I think the money makes a difference. It's not a matter of I think she would not see herself as being someone who is just trying to promote AT and T or other interests. I would hope, <laughs> uh, but I think that's where the money often is influential. Is that you just take those talking points as verbatim, um, which I don't know if I'm more frustrated with the people who don't get the money and take those talking points verbatim, or the people who at least <laughs> get the money to do it. But I want to. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't know anyone who doesn't take the money but believes any of those talking points. <laughs> um, I, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about, though, is this issue of 25-3 because, Ernesto, one of the things I've seen you puzzling over is T-Mobile and the promises that they've made. And Steve, you have, I think, the goods on, on what's happening as well behind the scenes. But Ernesto, if you want to just walk us through it. So in order to merge with Sprint, to purchase Sprint, T-Mobile made promises in California. What did they promise? So, I mean, they made a, a series of promises of, of, you know, at least in California, delivering, uh, you know, somewhere in excess of 50 megabits per second for around 90% of the population. And then federally, you know, 99% of the population above the federal definition of broadband, which is 25 and 3. So, you know, there's, there's two, there's two you know, schools of thought. I think I, I'm more skeptical of whether they actually will carry out those merger conditions. But at the same time, I have to believe that the law is the law, uh, and that's what the the legal requirements are are on the company, um, in subject to the enforcer. And the thing that's perplexing, right, of of an idea of the state spending money to deliver 25.3 in these really diff- tough to serve markets is that that's already supposed to be baked into the writing. And one of the primary proponents of the T-Mobile Sprint merger in California is also a primary proponent of this bill, um, the California Emerging, Emerging Technology Fund. And so they're actually, they actually signed an agreement with T-Mobile to carry out these promises. And in the thing that frustrates me a lot is um, how do you push a bill that's doing the thing that you said is already happening that based on agreements from a, a major private entity? Um, why are we having state money uh, being spent this way? Why are we trying to raise conflict with the idea of investing fiber in these markets. And so if I could just clarify what I'm, to make sure that people understand, your bill, 1130, would require investments in networks that are better than what T-Mobile has promised. But this other bill that some in industry are pushing pretty hard um, is requiring networks that are so slow that T-Mobile will already be doing it without subsidy, effectively, according to what they've said. That's right. And the reason why I, I've looked into that is, um, you know, the, the frontier bankruptcy should be educational for all people deciding policy on infrastructure. If every single person of frontier, you know, every their customers saw the moment they had something faster than a slow DSL network, they just bailed um, and rapid succession to such a point where it bank, bankrupted a major telecom company, then we shouldn't, we should presume that state investments of a similar caliber are going to face the same type of um, exodus. And if there's already baked into policy that uh, another provider is going to deliver something faster than what the state is financing, um, 
that raises serious waste questions because how long are those investments from the state, you know, with precious dollars are actually supposed to last? And are we just building bridges to nowhere in that respect? Steve, if I could paraphrase your emails and you can tell me if I'm wrong and your expression right now, I think your reaction would be nobody really expects T-Mobile to do any of that. Right. They'll build out their network to cover 90% of California's population or 99% of California's population. That's not hard to do. It already probably does. Um, it's a question of whether or not they can deliver the speeds and capacity uh, necessary to provide ubiquitous service at those at those service levels, and they can't. And I've worked with I've worked with T-Mobile, worked with one of my uh, clients, which is a city uh, in the Salinas Valley. You know, they can they can do spot service. Um, they can uh, they can load up the towers in a in a in a in a small area and provide a certain level of service in rural areas, but they're, they're, they're not going to be deploying, um, they're not going to be deploying their, uh, their network um, to any great extent, any greater extent than they're already doing now in rural California. California is, popu California's population is roughly 95% urban, 5% rural. But the land area is the other way around. It's roughly 5% urban and 95% rural. So you start doing the math and it's, like I said, it's not hard to provide a level of mobile service to people, um, to urban people in urban areas. Um, but you're never going to have the capacity at those densities um, to supplant wireline communications, wireline broadband. Um, and you're never going to have the money to build out that network to that, you know, over 95% of a very big state um, to reach only 5% of the population. It's not going to happen. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. I mean, T-Mobile, I have T-Mobile service. They, they do a great job with mobile communications. So does AT&T and Verizon if you're, if you're within reach of one of their towers. But they are not going to be supplanting fixed service. One of the things that I think people get confused is, is the difference between a bunch of us on mobile devices using it and then suddenly having, you know, 50 times that demand on a regular basis from perhaps even more people if they're using it as a home connection. The the physics just don't work very well for that. No, and we, we've seen that. Um, we've seen that in the, in the city of Gonzales um, where, I mean, just this is a project that was long in the making. But uh, the city went out and bought um, T-Mobile hotspots for every household in town, and, along with two years of service, um, and started handing them out uh, in March. Uh, and you know, it's provided a great lifeline service uh, to folks uh, to folks in Gonzales. It's performing better than AT&T's aging DSL network, according to people, but uh, it's not delivering the cable-like speeds. Um, that T-Mobile that promises uh, from, its, from its network. Um, you can't when you've got 2,000 people uh, in 2,000 2, households, 8,000, 10,000 people in two square miles, um, all using the same, uh, the same res wireless resources. They're doing a good job, but not anything like their, their, uh, like their, uh, their hype promises. Well, and I, there again, I just I always feel frustration with those kinds of solutions because I feel like a proper policy analysis should also say, when we stop spending money, do we still have anything? <laughs> or do we have to start all over again? And and so that's where um, I, it's interesting. And I and I, I love that cities can try different things. Um, but um, 
if nothing else, they've they've done a a value of providing a a horror story of (laughs) not necessarily a horror story, but a story of this not being the solution. Well, it's, it's, it depends what you, what problem you're trying to solve. Um, That's good. Yeah. Good point. You know, it's, if, if it's, you know, the, having a mobile hotspot is a lot, a lot better than nothing. Um, uh, particularly when, uh, you know, the kids are, the kids have to do schoolwork from home and, and people, uh, to the extent they can telecommute. Right. In the, in the short term, I, I agree. And that may be the best solution in the short term. I just, I'm reminded of the, of the town that basically decided not to do public transit and instead subsidized Uber. And I think <laughs> eventually found that that was not economically going to end well for them. And it also, I mean, it also just helps reveal to, to people and, and, and mayors and, and other folks that like our telecom policies in the state have failed. I mean, the idea that, um, we have to resort to these emergency expensive measures today uh, to just do some simple delivery of, of, of a basic amount of information, right? Like we're not even talking about um, gigabit services or anything like that. You know, we have spent an awful lot of money to have that future when we could have avoided it. And if you look at, you know, other places around the world and even in the U.S., I mean, uh, Chris, your organization did a great job of highlighting you know, the North Dakota story. Right. They, they did this long term thinking of, of investing in fiber, you know, 10 plus years ago. And, you know, under the COVID-19 pandemic, a uh, super majority of their students, something around 99 plus percent, uh, they, they have basic you know, su- sufficiently high enough Internet speeds to handle remote education. That's unheard of in the state of California right now. Right now in California, you know, we barely think maybe even half our students have that capability. And to the extent that that has not kind of forced a reckoning of, um, you know, acknowledging that our infrastructure policies have completely failed our, our people. It is in the local level. It just hasn't really quite worked its way to Sacramento just yet. So I have a, a question left for each of you. Uh, Steve, I wanted to ask, I think the other piece of your part, I think you've done a good job of explaining what T-Mobile will do. And also that T-Mobile's investments plan is entirely reasonable for their goals. Yep. Um, but I, I also expect that the CPUC will just blindly allow T-Mobile to do whatever it does and call it a day rather than trying to see if it's actually upholding the letter of the promise. It might be different this time. And I'm just a perpetual optimist, I guess. The history of, uh, of merger conditions in California is, is that lots, lots of stuff is promised. Even more is ordered. And then nobody nobody follows up to any great extent. Um, we saw that with the uh, with the front frontiers acquisition of Verizon systems in the state, uh, Charter's acquisition of uh, Time Warner and Bright House systems. Um, there's been a little bit of follow up, but nobody's really uh, keeping uh, keeping a, a close watch on it. This time around, the CPUC has put in place a citation system, and they're basically requiring T-Mobile to pay for somebody to monitor this. Um, but T-Mobile is, is going to be, T-Mobile's lawyers are going to be wrapping this up uh, in, uh, in court, uh, court filings and procedures for the next 10 years um, because T-Mobile has taken the position CPUC doesn't have the uh, authority to do any of this. And so two, three years from now, whether, it any, whether anybody at the CPUC is even going to remember that this happened is a good guess. And that's the hopeful take. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the optimist in me. <laughs> and so, so Ernie, um, what is the, what is the path for 1130 coming up? I mean, it sounds like 
it sounds like you still have the edge and that this is something that we still um, we can still hope will will move forward. Um, although you have a you have a hiccup right now. It's unrelated to your bill and just the nature of the whole legislature. But uh, what is the path forward for you? So just like every other, you know, good idea in Sacramento that faces opposition from, you know, kind of vested interests, um, getting the word out, you know, mobilizing uh, the, the people, you know, in terms of uh, grassroots activism, getting people to pick up the phone and call their legislator. You know, we don't have access to town halls or anything of that nature nowadays, right? So it's a little bit different in the um, kind of the direct contact way that people are used to influencing the legislator. But, you know, we've been down this road before, uh, you know, we got net neutrality passed not because the Sacramento legislature deemed it was a worthy goal that all of them should get on board. Uh, no, the reality was a whole ton of Californians were upset with the idea that the legislature wouldn't uh, institute that consumer protection and responded. I think we are in that same dynamic now with broadband access. I don't think they're, I think it's politically precarious to be in a position of saying less people should be given less today. And my job and the job of advocates is to make sure um, you know voters and, and folks know uh, what their elected officials are doing uh, in response to their needs, and you know so it's it's really kind of shining a light to the you know the, kind of the inside game that's happening uh, because once it goes public it, it's always indefensible and then suddenly every single senator and assembly member says oh well I plan to vote this way all along and the reality was not until everyone knew what was about to happen. That's a, it's a good quick political education for how those things really happen. <laughs> you know, I'll just, I'll I remember when I was, I was very young, I must have been eight or nine and um, the U.S. rep came to my school and my dad said, you should ask him why he opposed the, um, the creation of the EPA or, or some, something like that. And, uh, and so I did, you know, I, why'd you vote against this piece of environmental legislation? And, and, uh, and he said, oh no, I voted for it. And I went home and I told my dad, you're wrong. He voted for it. And my dad, my dad was like, yeah, after he voted against it like eight times and like tried to gut it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, um, so it was all kinds of, all kinds of games to play, but thank you both for coming on. Um, it's been a great conversation. I, I definitely hope that there is a lot of hope in California. I think the work that you are doing to bring good policy to a state that AT&T more or less previously controlled for so long that the, the cable telcos had so much influence in, it's just really heartening to know that we regularly have a fighting shot to get good policy across. So, so thanks for that work and thanks for coming on. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. That was Christopher talking with Ernesto Falcone and Steve Bloom. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 421 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>